Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Munnies, who has continued to follow the fallout from the state's decision to relocate its public health lab during the COVID-19 pandemic to Stillwater. Oklahoma Watch published a story this week on some new federal inspection results. Paul, can you bring us up to speed on why federal lab inspectors were at the public health lab again? That's right. They went to Stillwater to do basically a reinspection, which is what was needed after they issued a really harsh report in the fall um, of that lab, and including some problems with uh, testing delays, uh, employee training that was lacking, and um, some in- inadequate storage of samples. So they did that reinspection in February uh, and and kind of basically looked at what they needed to correct and and all the other stuff that they had found. So what does the latest federal inspection report show? Well, this time it was good news for the lab. They cleared the lab of the major infractions they found back in the fall. Um, and this time, the federal inspectors from the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services found mostly minor record-keeping infractions. Um, there was some kind of in- inadequate logging of temperature, uh, some some not great uh, keeping of demographic information they'd gotten on samples. Um, they'd also received a, a complaint on the newborn screening side, uh, but the federal inspectors found that that was to be unsub- unsubstantiated, and um, we didn't get any details of that, though, unfortunately. You went to Stillwater this month to tour the lab. What did you see? That's right. My colleague, Whitney Bryan, and I toured the lab earlier this month, and um, you know, it's basically set up in the outskirts of Stillwater between a church and a... Um, a cow pasture, and there was a lot of um, brand new equipment there, but a lot of it was not in use. They've spent about $6 million to outfit the lab with uh, brand new state-of-the-art equipment. What are they testing in that lab, and what's still being outsourced to other labs? So right now in the lab, they've got newborn screening, which is by far the largest volume of testing they do every year. It's more than 45,000 tests they they do per year on newborn screening. Uh, They also do some uh, sexually transmitted disease testing. And, of course, they do COVID testing and COVID variant sequencing there. Uh, They're still outsourcing quite a lot as well. They're not... They don't have back in house yet the HIV syphilis testing, uh, anything to do with mycology, which is kind of fungal infest infections, microbiology. Uh, they don't do rabies testing there or any testing for bioterrorism incidents. Now, uh, Governor Stead has touted this new research park that's right there near the public health lab or would be there uh, called the Oklahoma Pandemic Center for Innovation and Excellence. What's going on with that project? What's the latest? So that's very much still a work in progress after it was announced by Governor Stitt in October 2020, along with the relocation of the lab. Um, You know, they have a a grand plan, a vision there to build a research campus around the public health lab, and they have the space to do that um, that would kind of combine human, animal, and plant disease research and involve, you know, cooperation with the private sector. But they're telling me that that's very dependent, that campus is very dependent on federal funds under the American Rescue Plan. Now, the health department has asked for uh, that money uh, for the pandemic center, but there's been some secrecy around that request. What's going on there? 
That's right. We've asked several times for the health department to give us what they're planning for that and how much they've asked for. Uh, and they've each time they've sent us to the Office of Management and Enterprise Services, which has collected all the applications. There's more than $18 billion in applications for that federal relief funding. But they're claiming that that's kind of like a giant bid and all the people that are asking for that money should be treated the same uh, as bidders. And there's some bidding secrecy laws that they're, they've kind of basically said that they've triggered for that that bid. And they've not re- let get any left any information to us on the application side. Well, speaking of, of government records being taken out of the public eye, uh, the state House of Representatives this week could take up a bill that might uh, take records at the public health lab uh, out of the public's purview. How would that happen? That's right. It's in the latter stages. Senate Bill 1733 has already passed the Senate and is on to the House committees um, and is now on the House floor and up for for a vote possibly this week on the deadline week. Um, that could concern the public health lab because right now the public health lab is being managed by Prairie One Solutions, which was a nonprofit set up by the Oklahoma State University Research Foundation. And so far the state's paid about $2 million to that outfit to manage the lab and the first part of the pandemic center. Uh, of course, if this law passes, those records uh, by that manager in the lab would be out of the public view. And that's kind of a big concern for folks looking at transparency in government. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul Money's investigative work, including his stories about the public health lab in Stillwater, on our website at oklahomawatch.org. I'm with Keaton Ross in this segment, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. He recently spoke with Perry Lott, a 61-year-old man who's trying to rebuild his life after a wrongful conviction, landed him in prison for more than three decades. Keaton, how did you connect with Mr. Lott? So Sean Hiddle, who's a private investigator that actually worked for Oklahoma Watch several years ago, posted on Twitter that he had uh, knew of a good story of a man who was wrongfully convicted, trying to rebuild his life, fighting for full exoneration still. So I sent him a message, got Perry's number, called him. Uh, we chatted and connected and kind of I explained who I was and why I wanted to, to talk with him. And eventually we were able to, to meet up and speak in person. So what were the circumstances of, uh, of Mr. Lott's initial arrest? So he's from Wisconsin and he had moved to Oklahoma. He, he wasn't in Oklahoma long um, he was in Ada at that point and was on his lunch break sitting in his car. And an officer approaches him, asks him what he's doing, who he is. He gives him that information. The next day, the police show up at his work asking if he'd be in a lineup. And he told me, sure, I'd be in a lineup. I, I was brought up to trust the police and what what they're telling me and he was in that lineup, um, identified, he believes, through a gold tooth that he had, and he never went home from that lineup. So how did his trial and uh, subsequent sentencing play out? So he was he was found guilty of rape and robbery and sentenced to more than 400 years in prison, so a whole lot of time. And what options are there for a person who maintains uh, their innocence after being convicted of a crime? So you have the initial appeal after your trial concludes so where you can raise issues like ineffective assistance of counsel, 
or try to raise an issue that certain evidence wasn't presented, those sorts of things. If you lose that appeal, it becomes a whole lot more difficult to get your case looked at or, or reheard. Uh, at that point, you need really new evidence, whether that's DNA evidence, a witness recanting to get it back in, into the legal system and going again. So he, he didn't get the, the first appeal, and it was a long road ahead for him. But he did eventually get his case reexamined. How was he able to do that? So he he told me he had reached out to the Innocence Project for several years, and finally um, they took up his case, uh, I want to say around 2013, 2014, and they were able to take the route of reexamining the DNA evidence. Um, nothing was found there that would link him to the crime, and that's how they were able to uh, get the case going again and get it reexamined. Now, once that new evidence uh, from the Innocent Project came to the surface, Lot had to make a pretty significant decision, didn't he? Tell us about that. Yeah, so the the Pontotoc County District Attorney's Office was not willing to let him go. Um, they they said the evidence wasn't overwhelmingly convincing that he didn't do it, and they've been pretty adamant in other cases as well, um, where evidence comes up that they're they're going to keep fighting it and they're going to to try to maintain the conviction, and that was the same in this case. And eventually, they offered that they would let him go out of prison if he agreed to stay on probation and agreed not to seek any kind of financial compensation or restitution. And he ended up doing that because otherwise it would have been potentially years left in prison where you're fighting the case and it it just keeps dragging on. And he was in his mid-50s at that point. He has some health issues and at that point, he decided, I just you know, need to get out here and, and taste some freedom. Now, he's been out of prison for four years. What's his life like now? So he works, he lives in Oklahoma City. He works part-time at uh, an apartment complex that caters towards helping homeless people find housing, um, works at their front desk, and um, he's also into poetry, um, very spiritual man, um, active in reading the Bible and attending church and those sorts of things. So that's kind of how he spends his time. Now, this is uh, kind of an unusual person to encounter. In your interview with him, what what stood out to you about Perry Lott? Um, I think the, the thing that stood out to me the most was just he told me he doesn't hold any resentment towards the system or that sort of thing, but just the circumstances of it, like he's missed out on a lot and he regrets a lot, you know, seeing, he told me he sees people with families and, you know, secure jobs and a place to live their own home. And uh, he can't help but feel, you know, regret not being able to pursue that and pursue that kind of happiness. Um, He told me, you know, if someone, the significant other or someone comes into my life, that's, that's fantastic. But you know, at this point, I'm I'm too old to really go seek that out myself. So, kind of just over those three decades, just missing out on on being able to pursue that kind of American dream was a big regret for him. Most of adult life, really. Correct. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, Keaton, thank you for being here and, and introducing us to Perry Lott. You can read Keaton's story about Mr. Lott and all of Keaton's other work on criminal justice issues in Oklahoma on our website at oklahomawatch.org, where you can also subscribe to his Justice Watch newsletter. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.